Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Raging Bull, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Kathy Moriarty. Based on Raging Bull, My Story by Jake LaMotta, Joseph Carter, and Peter Savage. Screenplay by Paul Schrader and Mardik Martin, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. We're still stuck in the year 1980 as we try to dissect the Best Picture winners and nominees of that year. Last week, we had a very hearty discussion on ordinary people. Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought? Um, and here we are with uh, the other seminal nominee in that, the most prestigious probably film amongst those other films, Raging Bull from 1980. Yeah. The last time we did Scorsese, we dabbled with some Goodfellas. Uh, that was a lot of fun, I remember. So uh, here we are in a space that you and I, I think, really, really like, boxing. Yeah. Boxing films. Yeah. If you had to rank, you know, like... T- Maybe we'll talk a little bit about this today, but just like the quality of sports films. Like for me, it's like boxing, baseball, basketball, and I think football might be dead last just in terms of how many good ones there have been. I would agree with that. And I think part of that has to do with who's playing the part. Yeah. So that leads into pretty soon here in the minute what we're about to do with uh, performances. But yeah, I think boxing, as long as the choreography is done well. Sure. Yeah. It's it's easy to kind of stand and with the right camera angle not hit somebody because they duck out of the way. It's mm-hmm. really hard if you don't know how to dribble a basketball and shoot it to dribble a basketball and shoot it. Yeah. Or run a fly pattern or... Yeah. I mean, and you see it all the time at baseball games when actors are brought out to throw the first pitch and it kills, oh, some, kills d- somebody in the first row because it it's so bad. goes to the left into the dugout. If you can't throw a ball, you're not playing quarterback either. So um, it's, it's a fun space to get in, but if not cast properly, Annie bar the door, it's... Um, well, shit show. Absolutely. But I agree with you, Rank. Those are the, that's how I would put those four as well. Excellent. Yeah, that's a kind of a shame. I think you and I, I think football is probably our favorite sport and has the weakest entries. Like when you kind of really break it down, there's some good football films, but not like there's boxing, right? Right. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, more about that. Uh, some more of the Evan Williams bottled in bond bourbon. It'll be interesting to see what 1994's uh, bottle is going to be like. <laughs> yes. Um, but this, I think this one fits the film, right? This is a little raw and harsh, much like today's entry. Mm. To Kathy Moriarty. Yeah. All right. I've been dying to do this since I, I read this literally like. 30 minutes ago. Big story. Did you uh, see last year the film Barbarian? No, but I read a lot about it. Did not see it. Yeah. um, I heard good things. Pretty decent. Yeah. Kind of, for me, it fell apart in like the last act, but a very interesting premise Mm -hmm. um, and kind of an interesting horror space. But it was made by this guy named, written and directed by this guy named Zach Krager, who I only knew from this comedy show uh, from years, the early aughts, uh, The Whitest Kids You Know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. But kind of got started in like sketch comedy. So he had a new screenplay that's been generating a lot of buzz around Hollywood. It's called Weapons. Mm. Let me read this to you, Matt. Yeah. Days after a feverish auction wrapped for weapons, the town is still talking about the wake. This is from Deadline, by the way. way. Left in its path. The deal for the Zach Krager directed horror film is remarkable in that this is only Krager's second film after the highly profitable debut Barbarian. And it's sold to New Line Cinema. Mm. For an overall sum around 
38 million dollars oh my god for a spec script yeah that's got to be the highest selling spec script ever it has to be so a part of that 38 million dollars yeah so part of that includes the budget for the film and then craig are getting 5 million to direct and 10 million for screenwriting so he'll take home like 10 million total not the full 38 but to bid on a, a spec screenplay you're right that you don't want another studio to make this. You're so invested in wanting to make that film that you pony up $38 million before you shoot one reel of film. That's wild. I mean, like... Do we have premise? Uh, no, it's very, I think, witchcraft and maybe some cultish uh, type stuff. Uh, We're going to have to do that show. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you know, M. Night, you know, had, you know, some kind of high-spec screenplays, but that was like in the 2 to $3 million for like uh, Sixth Sense, right? Before everybody realized what he was. Yeah, and uh, wow. yeah, I couldn't believe that total. I was like, that's absurd. So that deal is for the rights to the script, purchasing the script, and then it sounds like some pre-production involved as well. It has to be, yeah. That's a strange deal. Yeah, I've never, yeah, it, it's almost like a, a pre-budget kind of like inking deal before we cast or really do anything with the project. You know, what's odd about that too is it's your 38 million before you shoot one moment of film. That's exactly at the price point that they hate. And I got to say, that's a little high for horror, right? Yeah. We kind of wanted a little lower for a prestige horror. And we haven't even cast the, the thing yet. So. Especially when, I mean, you think about what's the director's name again? Zach Krager. Yeah. Zach Krager. Yeah. For all of the things that, that uh, barbarian was and certainly created some buzz. Yeah. He's not David Cronenberg yet. No, no, no. Or Ari Aster. Mm-hmm. Ari Aster's not calling that shot. Mm-mm. And I'm excited to see Cronenberg's next film with Joaquin Phoenix. That looks awesome. You mean Ari Aster's film? Yeah, yeah it means Ari Aster's film. But yeah. Cronenberg has something coming out too that's that's pretty good also. Yeah, Infinity Pool. There you go. Yeah. Both of those, right? Mm-hmm. So neither one of those had a price tag of $38 million. No way. No way. I mean, guys. Uh, not even Ke- Kevin Williamson's also... Uh, mm-hmm. auction scream the first one they didn't get anywhere close near that number because a big number for overall budget of a script is 10 million yeah that's not going to be a 380 million dollar horror mm-hmm. flick there's no way unless it is i doubt there's no there's no way mm-hmm. that's that's insane it'll be one to monitor uh as they kind of start you know casting and film making it and then when it comes out we'll have to kind of keep an eye on this one jesse there's got to be an inside story on that yeah what does he have on new line or what do they have in production that this is going to shit can because I think they just wanted it really bad. I don't know, man. It must be, it must be a good read, right? You would think it's got to read like gangbusters. So, Mm. well, anyway, good story. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was kind of fit, fit our wheelhouse and you know, the podcast, you know, just some kind of like production buzz and whatnot. But, Mm -hmm. um, let's say we dive right into our flight question. Teased it out a minute ago, right? And that's in the ranking of four films or genre of subgenres of sports films that you had. Contention was a lot of it is who's able to play the parts. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going to stay for the flight. Top three performances by actors as athlete or sport related in film. So I guess we'll include coaches or GMs here if you want to go that route. Okay. 
Excellent. Uh, my number three, I'm going with Christian Bale as uh, Dickie Eklund from The Fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good performance. And, you know, much like Mr. De Niro today, talk about body transformations. You know, Bale really skin, uh, skinnied down for, for that role, only to have to pile it back on to play Batman for The Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he's really good in that movie. He kind of steals the show for Mark. I think everyone in that movie steals the show for Mark Wahlberg, yeah. uh, Amy Adams, and Melissa Leo. Like, everyone's really good in that movie, kind of except Mark Wahlberg, and he's all right. Yeah. Uh, but it's Christian Bale's, you know, the, he, he took the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor that year. And I think a pretty okay boxing film from a director that, you know, David O. Russell, I can very much yin and yang with that guy, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think I think Bale really steals it, and it's real kind of honest depiction of, you know, this kind of coach boxer, and he never got his moment, but he's a druggie, and he's all messed up. I think it's pretty good. What, what do you think about that movie? I love that story. Yeah. I love that that's based on the trio of fights that are featured in that, mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, what? Who's? What's the who's Mickey Ward? Irish Mickey Ward versus what's it? Arturo Gotti. Three of the best fights of all time. Which is interesting because we're going to get into legacy of fights today when we get into Raging Bull. But hmm. yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that film. But you're right, it is stolen by Christian Bale. Compare the two though, Jesse. Yeah. Christian Bale versus yeah. No, there's no contest. Mark Wahlberg <laughs> and I love Mark Wahlberg, but exactly no contest. Yeah. Number three for me. Mm-hmm. Mr. Woody Harrelson as Billy Hoyle in White Men Can't Jump. Nice. That movie really grew on me as I got older. I was mm-hmm. not happy with it when it first came out. I really wanted something that was a little bit more hardcore basketball. <laughs> Look, Woody Harrelson's got a fucked up jumper. It's Jamal Wilkes bad. And if you guys don't know who Jamal Wilkes is, then Google it. It's a crazy looking jumper that that guy had. Kind of behind his head, sort of soccer style throw in. And look, you can do it that way. Bird had a little bit of a sling to the way he shot, and God knows he didn't miss many shots in his career. But um, I think the performance basketball-wise, the handles that he has, and then that character, which is wildly frustrating, might be, including Cheers, Woody Harrelson's best dramatic performance, period, for me. What about True Detective? Uh, (laughs) No. McGonaghy steals that that first season of that. But um, look, he's fine in that, too. It's not to, to shit on his performance there, but con man basketball player with the gear to the little silly tie dyed hat and his whole shtick is, is a really, really good. Great choice. I haven't seen that film in years. Like I'm going to have to revisit that one. We could do a basketball cask someday. Yeah. I think that would be a lot of Hoosiers and air bud and <laughs> air bud. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. I remember something else I've been wanting to chat with you about perfect to do it on the pod. Mm. Uh, Real quickly, James Gunn unveiled his whole new slate for DC films going forward, and that's a whole big conversation for another day. Mm. But one thing that really intrigued me was this show that they're planning to do on HBO Max called Lanterns, which is the Lantern Corps, Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart, but the way he described it was like procedural drama in the vein of like True Detective as they kind of like... Cosmically? Yeah, cosmically like solve disturbances across the galaxy. Sign me up. That sounded pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, Are well, they going to get Nick Pizzolatto to help write? I don't, I don't know. That was just kind of just his, his initial way to describe it. I don't know anyone that's attached to that thing, but... Well, it fits, Jesse, because those are intergalactic cops, at least the green portion. Yeah, now, when you yeah. get into the red and the blue and the purple and all those different colors and what they represent, that's a whole other story. I like that. That might be the way to do it, right? Hmm. 
Good. Let that fester, right? Yeah, that's nice. Excellent. My number two is uh, Steve Carell as John DuPont in Foxcatcher. You know, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, it was a couple weeks back when we talked about Robin Williams and just how dynamic he was as an actor and dramatic and comedic. And I think the same thing with Carell, right? I mean, from, you know, the Jon Stewart show to The Office to 40-Year-Old Virgin, obviously comedic. And I really like seeing him shed that for a really unhinged sociopath as John DuPont. Uh, I really liked Foxcatcher uh, as like a wrestling Olympic film. And I never hear anybody really talk about it. I've only seen it once, so maybe I need to revisit it. But I thought his performance and his prosthetics and it was so quietly cold in the vein of like Hannibal Lecter versus big and bombastic. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's my number two. I, I, I've always really liked that that particular uh, performance from him. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even consider that. That's a really, really strong choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's going to blow you away. You're not, you do not see this coming. Cause I don't really even like this genre of film. Okay. It's a comedy. Okay. And it also stars Woody Harrelson in it. Okay. But it's Randy Quaid in Kingpin. Nice. <laughs> Although close second or to be is Bill Murray in Kingpin. Yeah. I'm not sure where the Ferrelli brothers lost whatever magic they had in that early to mid nineties. Yeah. They had something there for a while. Yeah. It might've been stuck on you, right? Well, that was the one that did it. Yeah. <laughs> and they never have really found their groove or they just did such a terrible job that now they can't find a gig in Hollywood, but those guys could write, man. Yeah. And those guys could direct. And they had some big moments And Kingpin is a movie that no matter what time it comes on, what part of the film it is, you gotta sit I will it. sit and watch it every single time. Nice. It's <laughs> really good. I love that film. Yeah. Comedy is not my wheelhouse and bowling is barely a sport, but I guess it qualifies. I'd have to kind of see what the, cause I think the timeline is dumb and dumber kingpin. There's something about Mary. And then I think me, myself and Irene, those are all four really solid comedies. Really solid. <laughs> so, comedies. Uh, great choice. I would never would have anticipated that one. Yeah. I didn't either until I was thinking about it and I thought that's that. Yeah. Excellent. My number one, uh, we might have the same one, but you know, since we're not talking about it in this film, I got to pick it. It's Stallone as Rocky Balboa, right? Cheater. Yeah, I know. It was just, but it was, it almost be cheating to not put him in because, you know, we did six straight episodes about the series and just how good and everything hinged on his performance, right? And just how lovable and how he portrays what people could come across as stupid, right? But it's just his intellect and just it's what he knows and he knows the world of fighting and it, and he's good at it and he's the lovable underdog. I mean, what's not to like, and you know, pick whichever Rocky film you want. I'll give you one through, we'll skip five, but one through four and six, any one of those performances can be my number one. They're all really good. Rocky Balboa, you know, specifically as well. Yeah. Rocky honestly would be number one. Uh, I just, we've talked about that so much. And so I wanted to try to be sure, yeah, a little bit more creative, but that is also my number one. That's not who I'm going to give. I'm not going to honorable mention it. You're absolutely right yeah. to, to Stallone yeah. and Balboa. That's the winner, mm-hmm. but that's not going to be my number one. Okay. Although I love your choice Thank and you. I don't disagree. You're absolutely right. hundred percent. Thank you. Going to go also a little bit off the beaten path okay. for a wrestling film, not Foxcatcher, but Vision Quest. Yeah. This is Mr. Matthew Modine as Loudon Swain. Oh, interesting. Love that film. Still love that film. Uh, I can't tell you why. Like, I'm not a wrestler. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can tell you why, but I'm not a wrestler. 
I don't have a lot of knowledge in that. I mean, other than a little bit that we did in PE and a couple kind of intramural class introductions that I sort of did back in college. And I was just trying to fill out a schedule with you know one hour credit or whatever. Uh-huh. I just think that's a really, really interesting film. And what he puts himself through seemed very appropriate for my friends that were high school wrestlers. And then, of course, it's the mountain that he's got to climb, which is, um, I can never remember that guy's name, Michael Schofling as uh, the guy he's got to beat. Little inappropriate romance in that film, which mm. totally works. And some moments of levity met by brutal, brutal toll that it takes on his body. And I think as much as I was kind of hot takey with Woody Harrelson, mm-hmm. That might be Modine's best role, too. Yeah. Certainly not Cutthroat Island, although close second. <laughs> That's what did have been, right? Yeah. Uh, great choice. Yeah, you might be the first person to ever mention Vision Quest on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's pretty good. I saw that one floating around on one of the, the streaming services. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen it? I've seen parts of it, and I think it was just on cable. I don't think I've ever seen the, the full thing all the way through. It's worth a watch, man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, now that I saw it kind of floating on there, I'll definitely add it in and check it out. Want to do an honorable mention or two? Yeah, go ahead. Um, Gene Hackman and Hoosiers. Yep. Uh, you know, you know the the coach perspective. I know. I think it's 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 easy to play. You know, intense hot head coach Bobby Knight esque, but uh, you know, Hack, it's just another one of role in Hackman's career that he just was so good at it, mm-hmm. and just you know, talk about just understated. You know, whether it's Popeye Doyle or Lex Luthor or something like night moves or Pa Tenenbaum. I mean, the guy, he, he, he slayed every role that he was offered. The birdcage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got, I got to go with that one. That one's pretty good. Good one. Thank you. Kevin Costner is crash Davis. Mm. Uh, and that's what I thought was going to be number one when I first started this list and then just kind of missed the cut. And then the second one, and this isn't even because he's an actor, but because he was a Lithuanian absolute stud also from Hoosiers, Jimmy Chitwood played by, mm. Marius Valenius brings up an interesting point. Yeah. Do you see that new Sandler flick? Um, what's it? The scout or whatever it's called, uh, where he's the basketball scout. I don't think so. No, it's on Netflix. What the hell's the name of it? Um, we just checked it out. Okay. Better than okay. Okay. His last two films for me, yeah. uh, which would be uncut gems, which I loved. Yeah. And then that film, which can I not remember the name of it right now? Look it up. He's so tricky, right? I mean, it's because he'll do some stuff like that, but then like in between all of that is like a Jack and Jill or Grown Ups, and I just like I never know where the guy's going. But to his credit, I mean, if he wants to make hustle, okay, yeah, I have seen that on there. I never know where to go with him. I'd never know what the product's gonna be like. So yeah. I'll check that one out. As he's moved away from <clears throat> some of that n- sh- sloppy comedy that he did. He still does it, though, from time to time. He still does, but for every time that he makes it sloppy, then he'll show up with something sleepy like Punch Drunk Love or Rain Over Me Mm -hmm. or Uncut Gems or this Hustle film. And look, the comedic genius of Sandler can't be lost on anybody, although it might be a little played out now. Yeah. There's some there's some gravity there when he wants to do it. Like, I think we we did Punch Drunk Love on Mm -hmm. the show a couple years ago. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's there if he wants to do it. It is. For sure. For sure. It, it was pretty good material. We started last night. We were running out of things to watch. And so we started that murder mystery with him and Jennifer Aniston. Mm. Shitty. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't even know if I'm going to finish it. Yeah. Um, we had two big strikes yesterday. Let me yeah. finish the thought about Sandler and I'll tell you about these two big strikes. Yeah. But with the proper material and a legitimate budget, 
I think there's still something. And look, I love Happy Gilmore and yeah, me too. Billy Madison. I love those as much as anybody. But, you know, what was it Jack and Jill and some of that other oh, shit that he God. came out with was <laughs> yeah. just. Uh, but the two strikes, one would be murder mystery and the other one, we have to do it, is a knock at the cabin door. Yeah. Um, I called you and said I got Shamiland again last night. <laughs> Don't reveal too much. I won't because I know you're going to see it, but just. I think that'll be a make for a great discussion on just the ever evolving enigma of M night. The multiple times we've spent countless, I don't want to say hours, but minutes trying to figure out what makes or breaks this guy for every split or visit that I think resurrects him is tripled down on, not even doubled down, tripled down on with shit like glass and the happening. And then this thing I saw last night. Um, and dude, I just airbender after earth. Yeah. And then you got like signs in there, right? The signs is great. Yeah. So like one of every four films he makes has potential. So, okay. So if the last three haven't been great, the next one will be amazing. Mm-hmm. Right? The law of averages say we're due for something special next. There were six people in the theater last night. And oh, I can't Jesus. imagine that thing's going to clear $10 million. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So think about this for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Avatar is going to win for what week eight in oh, a row now. Yeah. I think it is week eight. Yeah. <laughs> and Shemilan won't usurp week eight of Avatar. Yeah, that's not good. To the larger whole, that speaks to the very, very weak, weak, weak slate of films. Oh, yeah. Hurry up, Quantumania, and hurry up, um, Creed 3. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is coming for us on the horizon to your list. To your list. Uh, but let's go ahead and dive right into our review breakdown of Raging Bull. Remember those cheers? They still ring in my ears. And for years, they remain in my thoughts. Because one night, I took off my robe, and what I do? I forgot to wear shorts. I recall every fall, every hook, every jab. The worst way a guy can get rid of his flab. As you know, my life wasn't drab. Though I'd much... Though I'd rather hear you cheer when you delve... When I, though I'd rather hear you cheer when I delve into Shakespeare. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. I haven't had a winner in six months. Though I'm no Olivier, I would much rather... And though I'm no Olivier, if before Sugar Ray he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's to play. So give me a stage where his bull here can rage, and though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. Let's start with the beginning. Uh, something I've always really remembered with this particular film, which is its opening credit sequence, which is just Lamada, played by Robert De Niro, just dancing around the ring in slow motion to uh, some classical music as the credits come up just one by one, kind of outside of the ropes, as you will. Uh, it's artistic as hell. It's just Scorsese just really shooting for it, but man, it really tells me a lot about the film about, and then especially when you juxtapose that with the opening scene, which is that shit, uh, that this is a film all about pride and the sport of boxing. And then when you immediately smash cut from that to an evening with Jake LaMotta, and then you see the the toll, not only physically, but mentally, uh, that the sport's going to have on this particular man. 
I love those credits. It's it's got to be one of my favorite opening credit sequences. You know, Scorsese does credit sequences so well when when he does do them in his films. But what do you think? And then and, and then we know it's going to be in black and white, right? And then um, I just don't think I could ever watch this film in color. Uh, this is going to be a raw, gritty ride, and I think the credits tell you buckle up. Yeah, yeah, buckle up. There's nothing pretty about this movie, and we're not even going to pretend to make it pretty. Mm-hmm. He's not pretty. His reciting of the lines isn't pretty. All of that is, I think, in a way, as important to the film as the score might be. Yeah. The score certainly sets tone. Mm -hmm. But what we open up with, even the film is very grainy. Yeah. It's really poor quality film on purpose because it just feels smoky and dingy and gritty and... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you know you're in for something that's not going to be a pleasant ride. Yeah. So buckle up. Yeah. Yeah, it totally works. It's a really great decision by Scorsese. And when we when we cut to De Niro is and you know the first so an evening with Jake LaMotta and says New York 1964. So we're just like, oh, like if you don't know anything about the guy going into this film, which most people probably don't, right? Uh just general audiences. And then you see this like slub slub of a man right he's just all big and you know nowadays he throws some fat prosthetics on someone mm-hmm. no man this is de niro gaining 60 pounds to look just awful right yeah and you know he's got this prosthetic nose in this film but he's in bad shape smoking the cigar i mean his shirt won't even button right uh he looks like he's sweating under the lights because you know he's like sweating like ham juice or something yeah, but butter. <laughs> he's yeah in bad shape, and he's like flubbling over these lines. Like he's trying to do this like gig, like he's some sort of actor or like it's some sort of stand-up routine. But he's like awful at it. And yeah, my horse, my horse, my kingdom from a horse. I think it's very interesting that they parallel Richard the Third with Jake LaMotta. It's mm-hmm. just falls from grace, right? Right. And then we we see that that title, 1964, and then we cut back to, I think, 1941, 1942, mm-hmm. in the boxing ring. Him in his prime, right? Yeah. And it's fast, feverish, and it's the first boxing match. Uh, well, is this one against Sugar Ray? Yeah. No the, first, no, the first one is not, no. Let me look it up real quick. But Jesse's looking this up. I want everyone to know that the total amount of fights... Jimmy, that, Jimmy Reeves. ...that occur in totality, not versus each other, but that Sugar Ray Robinson and LaMotta have are over 320. Sugar Ray Robinson, or 315. Sugar Ray Robinson had 207 fights, Jesse. Not together, but like they're total fights, right? Yeah, and LaMotta went 106. So these guys, and it even happens in the film, are fighting and then taking a gig like two weeks later. I can't believe that. I think that happens in this film is like he fights in fight two. We'll get there. Sugar Ray Robinson and then fights him again six weeks later. Yeah. Or is it four weeks later? It might be three weeks later. <laughs> Your body hasn't healed yet. Yeah, no way. Yeah. I mean, fighters today have one fight in the fight maybe six months later. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And this just goes to the marketing of boxing back then because there wasn't the engine behind it. There was no inside boxing on HBO narrated by Lee of Schreiber that, you know, sent I remember money. That. Into, yeah, I remember that. Instead, it was just, you want to get paid? Go fight again. Get in there. 106, that's a remarkable number of fights. Yeah. And frankly, after 106, to even be able to vocalize Anything. one <laughs> sentence that's audible is something. Yeah, your body has to just be mush at that point. Because Lamada wasn't somebody that was quick on his feet and light. Like He was going to take some punishment and hopefully dole out more than he took and win in the end. Mm-hmm. 
So he's taking heavy, heavy, heavy damage. He goes to the Rocky Balboa School of Fighting, which is I'm going to block the punches with my face. I'm really good at blocking punches with my face. Watch this defense. <laughs> yeah. It's rough. And I love that Scorsese portrays it as a rough, as a rough lifestyle mm-hmm. and a, lo- a rough sport to be involved with. Uh, Scorsese himself claimed, he's like, I was never a boxing fan. I'm not even a real sports fan to begin with, but found a lot to admire about the sport and just kind of what it does to people. And something about, I think we talked about this in Goodfellas, Scorsese is just master at the roving camera. So once we're in the ring, this thing's moving in. It's doing like zoom in and close-ups and into the corner. And like, we're like feverishly in this boxing match. It's it's a part of the action. Yeah. It's a whole lot different than how they're done in the Rocky films and even the Creed films for that matter. This is, it, it's almost like you're like in the fight with them. And I, I got to applaud Scorsese for that. I mean, if he really wanted to show us the raw visceral reaction of Raging Bull, of what that's going to be like, I think he accomplishes that in spades, especially when we get to that final fight we see. And I got audio for it uh, with Sugar Ray. Holy cow, it turns into a horror film. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. Blood dripping off the ropes. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, for everybody out there that don't, know or care to look in the history of boxing, there's the total number of fights that each one of those two men had, but six against each other. Sadly, and I think the obstacle that LaMotta never quite gets over is the Sugar Ray Robinson, who is widely regarded pound for pound as the greatest fighter that ever stepped into the ring. It's sort of hard to argue with that many fights. He goes one and five against him. Mm-hmm. He beats him in fight two and then loses loses one, wins two, and then drops the last four. And the final fourth one, you know, kind of is, it's, it's curtains. Give the man credit. Mm-hmm. Keeps getting back again in the ring with a style that is just not going to work against Robinson because he's too quick to catch. And because the way LaMotta was was taught to fight or preferred to fight, which was heavy damage followed by more heavy damage, literally obliterating you into nothingness. You hit Robinson once and it stings like a mother, Mm -hmm. but then Robinson's able to get away. So if you just set up a bunch of heavy one shots, what you end up doing is kind of in a Rocky styled strategy, burning yourself out with nothing to follow it up. If he could get two, and that's what happens in fight two Mm -hmm. is he catches him with three boom, boom, boom. And Robinson can't get back. That never happened again the rest of the time they fight. Like, I'm not saying he didn't catch him with a couple of jabs if LaMotta ever threw a jab. But this heavy left or right hook haymaker that that found its mark would happen on occasion, but Robinson was talented enough to backpedal away, and because he was more fleet of feet, yeah. it really was a terrible matchup for LaMotta. Yeah. And I think it prevents him from being in the discussion. He's in the discussion of all-timers. But anybody that holds the belt, I feel like in boxing is all one of the all timers, which yeah. kind of is horse shit. Yeah. Um, you just can't get over that hurdle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting concept to sort of tackle in this because my question for you is what's the bigger hurdle for LaMotta looking back at his life? Because this was the screenplay was adapted from his his biography. Yeah. Is it the wild inability to quell the burning jealousy had? with anyone who looked at his wife, Jackie, <laughs> yeah. or is it never no. being able to get over on Robinson, which is a bigger, Vicky, bigger issue. Vicky. It's gotta be right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. No, well, I was going to follow up with that question with kind of what comes next is 
what's more violent and visceral in this film? Is it the fights in the ring or is it domesticated life? Jesus Christ. I swear to God, I'm gonna come in there and I'm gonna kill you. Come on, honey, let's be let's be friends. Truth, all right? You can't, I'm telling you. You can't fucking eat and drink like an animal. Put up with this fucking bajor here. You can't do this. I'm telling you. Forget about the Reeves thing. You got a million other fights coming up. You just can't keep doing this. What's wrong? Something's the matter. What's going on here? My hands. My hands? Okay. I got these small hands. I got like little girl's hands. I got them too. What's the difference? You know what that means? No matter how big I get, no matter who I fight, no matter what I do, I ain't never gonna fight Joe Lewis. No. Yeah. <clears throat> They're different weight classes to begin with, but maybe that answers a little bit about what you're saying is, you know, between him and Ray Robinson is just physically he's outmatched to him. And no matter how his physical prowess of how much he gets into shape, he'll he'll just never be able to stand up to a boxer like that. But I do ask you, I mean, oh my God, Bronx 1942, it was a different time. They get into a squabble like this. Everyone in the apartment complex can hear it the neighbor he's going to eat the neighbor's dog and leave it for dead in the hallway the cops aren't going to come they're not going to arrest jake lomada i mean it's just like they go on like this wasn't a big deal and i I like that he tells honey let's be friends truce i'll write truce they do this every day uh this is rough and this is where the film really is i think a tough watch uh is in this the, the private life of, of Jake LaMotta is outside of the ring. He is just as much a raging bull as he is inside the ring. It's, it's a rough man. I, this is, he, he, he lives the way he fights, right? Yeah. You know, history paints the picture of LaMotta as whatever you want to perceive him to be regarding his record. One of the all-timers, just outside of one of the all-timers, whatever and wherever you stand on, on that ranking of all-time greats. What what history doesn't offer Lamada in the moment, because he's living it or making it, is perspective. Right? History offers perspective. What he's not able to attain, Jesse, is the perspective of I can't quite be as great as I want to be because I am 
by some accounts, fighting the greatest that there ever will be. He beats him once, to his credit. He does beat him once. One in five isn't a great record, Mm -hmm. but he does beat him once. The perspective looking back at LaMotta, you know, 70 years later, I guess, what, the 40s to now, so almost 100, I guess 90 years later. Yeah. 80 years later. Shows that he lost to Mount Rushmore levels of boxing prowess. Mm Mm-hmm. But in the moment, because he's stubborn and pig-headed and not particularly bright, although I have to give him credit, like even as bad as the lines are, he's able to memorize some of them. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wouldn't just tackle some Shakespeare on a just off night. Yeah, to go. yeah. So ambitious maybe also mm-hmm. does have some good qualities in there. The raging bull that refuses to accept failure because that's just not how the man is be- built until you literally knock him the fuck out. Is how he approaches everything. Yeah. And that's a character trait that is flawed and also great. But here's the question I want to ask you about this. And this mm-hmm. is something that I spent some time with wrestling back okay. and forth. Okay. I think this movie for me is 13 years too late. In 1967, this is the story of an antihero. Sure, yeah. Shot in the screen in a way that looks very similar to Last Picture Show. I, mm-hmm. I don't want Bogdanovich to do it, but yeah. you know where I'm going with yeah. this. I think in our discussion about should it have won the Oscar or should it have not have won the Oscar, this is certainly suffering from post-Rocky pissy bias from yeah. the elites in the Hollywood community. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, suffering through no fault of its own because we don't want this to be big, glossy, and pretty. Rocky was big, glossy, and pretty. Yeah. I mean, that's still a raw film, but prettier than this. Sure. Yeah. I think this movie leaves people cold because they feel like we left that anti-hero shit behind Mm. and we want rot drama. So give me sweet Mary Tyler Moore and a really good performance and Timothy Hutton don't give me De Niro redoing boxing. We just did boxing yeah. and it just feet directorially. That's brave. Yes. To oh, do yeah. it this way. Yeah. And it suits the film. But again, the perspective that history offers 40 years later, mm-hmm. 43 years later mm-hmm. is different than the perspective that history offers three months before the, uh, the, the uh, nominees went out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're not thinking about those things, right? Uh, no, I totally agree with you. Yeah, if this comes out like in that era of film that we like, right, it probably slays really well. Like it just fits that time where everyone's just really unhappy, like the, everything's all fucked up instead of like trying to improve things. And Galactic Space Adventures, right? Yeah. We're uh, about escapism in cinema and not like, oh, let me go see a movie like my home life sucks. Let me go see a, a movie where this guy's home life is just as bad as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a hard sell and we'll, we'll talk about the numbers, but this film wasn't a big hit when it came out. It's uh, definitely another one that like in retrospect has received more praise than it did when it came out. So I think it, 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 it had everyone just kind of against it from the word go with the violence, the, just the, the betrayal, uh, it wasn't a popular movie uh, right off the gate. And when I play an audio clip like that, how could it be? Yeah, yeah, we're pop that on for family movie night. <laughs> yeah, man, it gets to that same thing that we were talking about last week. And we just have a really strange desire in 1980 to want to be miserable, even in our entertainment. Yeah. And the LaMotta story isn't a pretty story. It's not mm-hmm. rags to riches. It's rags to rags with some domestic abuse in there. And then we're going to shoot it kind of ugly, although it's artistically <clears throat> ugly. It's yeah. ugly. 
I, I, man, you know, I lived through it at seven. So yeah. I guess I was sort of akin and aware, but not, not, not as sensitive to that stuff as not I might as, be now. Not as much now. Yeah. Especially after last week. What? And I know the world's grim and we already talked about that last week, so I don't want to go back and do it again. Mm-hmm. What is the insistence yeah. on the self-perpetuated misery that you want to put yourself through when you go to a viewing experience. And this is from someone who likes their stuff a little dark. Oh, I, yeah. The grimmer and weirder, the better for me. <laughs> I think this checks both of the boxes. I mean, and if we do the other one, like nobody is going to say Tess should have won best picture. No. Literally no one cares. Yeah. But the other third entry. The elephant man. Is even grimmer and weirder. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I'm with you. Uh, when, and I, it's puzzling. I kind of saw an interesting video this week on YouTube and. I only watched a little bit of it, uh, but it was it was this guy, and he was trying to kind of explain how to how to talk about like film, right? It was like this is how you can like break down and digest. And I was just kind of curious to see what his take was compared to like how I view things. Sure. Uh, but one way I I like to consider like what a film represents and what it's all about is when it was made and what was going on around that time, right? And then you kind of figure out, you know, like, well, this was happening in the world, so like that's why this film feels the way it does. That's why it feels so raw and like out of control, um, especially with horror. Right? Horror is like the perfect barometer of like this is what was happening in the world. Nuclear Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Here's your big Godzilla monster, right? Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like, you know, what in eighty was just like, man, we love being depressed. Keep. Keep them churning, man. <laughs> like, we can't get enough of this stuff. It's like the news every night. I know, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. It's it's hard for me to put my finger on it not being aware or able to, to process that at the age of seven. But this movie, and, and let's be clear about this. Mm-hmm. The last time I looked on AFI, which was two days ago, mm-hmm. number one is Citizen Kane. Yeah. Wickedly debatable, but okay, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is The Godfather. Mm-hmm. I don't find any debate there. I probably would move that to number one. But That's pretty okay. good. Pretty good. Three is Casablanca. Yeah, we could have a raging discussion about that. And not that I don't like that film, but there's no way that's the third best film of all time. Yeah. And this checks in at number four. Yeah. We'll talk about that at the the tail end of stats, right? So I think the, the critical accolades around this film are significant, and to have say it, the and least. And have improved since 80. But real quickly, uh, just to kind of... By the way, I think Ordinary People checks in somewhere in like the, the latter 20s, and, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, no. Ordinary People's not on that list. It's somewhere know. on there. I don't think so. Is, is it? Mm-hmm. We'll double we'll double check that one. Uh, doesn't seem... Because, you know, just the conversation around Ordinary People, I mean, like, just like I just felt like no one had been talking about that, but... You know, the other question I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. in 1980, who's a bigger star, De Niro or Redford? Maybe Redford? Not, not by a lot, though, huh? No, not by a lot. And they, they both make drastically different films. Mm-hmm. But De Niro's a name, right? Sure. I mean, he's already a pretty this film an Oscar winner. And he's making some edgy stuff. Taxi Driver's not a walk in the park either. I mean, that's a dark, dark film. Deer Hunter. Yeah, The Deer Hunter, uh, Mean Streets. I mean, he's really testing the waters with like what's accept- acceptable character-wise. Uh, Can I ask you another question since you're going down that and you just brought it up and yeah, I wanted to do it, but I'll just do it now. Which is a better De Niro character for you? Travis Bickle or Jake LaMotta? 
Oh, Lamada for sure. You think he, you like that character better than Travis Bickle? It, it's yeah, yeah. Which psycho do I like more? Uh, I think this one. Um, just listening to him spout out dialogue, and I'll I'll play another another clip here coming up, and we'll catch the story up, but. It just comes out of his mouth like it's nothing, right? I mean, this almost feels like Goodfellas or like a mob film, but it's not. It's a boxing movie, and he's just so good at getting this crap out of his mouth, right? And, you know, uh, Bickle's more contained, psychotic. It's a little quieter. It's a little more scarier, right? But I think there's more nuance here. I think there's some stuff to play with. You know, the body dysmorphia transformation certainly helps out, Um I think I'd rather see him perform this than I would. You know, Bickle's a great character, right? I mean, uh, what about you? Bickle. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It fits that era, though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 76, I mean, that character is of that weird post-Watergate, like weird time where you're going to have like a weird sociopathic anti-vigilante hero who's really unhinged and takes his dates to porno films. I mean... I think that film fits more of the time it was made than this one for sure. I think when you take the story of a boxer, that's someone who makes a living fighting and then undress it, show behind the scenes of what their lives are like. And we know about this, that it's, it's fairly accurate. Number one, because it's taken from the book that LaMotta wrote Mm -hmm. or co-wrote or helped some manner write and helped train De Niro on the set of this film too. We see story after story of boxer getting in trouble with the law for drugs, Mm -hmm. gambling, liquor, women, over and over and over. It's rare Mm -hmm. that you find a stable boxer. Yeah. So when you take the LaMotta story and you show all of those things in his life that I would argue really are terrible struggles Outside the ring, the only place he can truly express himself in that violent manner is inside the ring. Healthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> as unhealthy physically as that is, I think healthy yeah. in that manner. And then you make it by an Italian director and portray the Italian piece of this as Italian as it was. And I know La Mata was Italian. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. Mm-hmm. I think, it's the third time I've seen this film. I think this movie is in 2023 what I would expect that story to be. doesn't mean that it's any prettier. Yeah. But if you tell me the story of the rock band on tour, and I don't mean almost famous, like you take Guns N' Roses and you take the book written by Hammer of the Gods guy that wrote the GNR biography too. Stephen Davis. Stephen Davis, thank you. Yeah. And show me how they grew up and then look at the story. Like, you're, oh, of course they did that. Of course they did. Of course he was like that. Of course he was like that. Yeah, like, so you're saying there's like... I don't want to say on the nose because that's very or derogatory. a little left for the imagination, right? It's fairly by the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Bickle... Unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, one thing I noticed while uh, watching this, uh, Scorsese really likes these types of stories because there's a lot of parallels between this and Goodfellas and this and The Wolf of Wall Street. Right. He likes... And I love that all three of those films are set in three different worlds, boxing, the mafia, and Wall Street. 
where he has all this super not corrupt, healthy places. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> where like it's almost like this like rise and fall story, but there's always domesticated strife, right? There's always this battered housewife in all three of those films. Mm-hmm. There's the 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 sub crony in this film. It's Joey Joe Pesci, his brother. Uh, in uh, Goodfellas, it's uh, Joe Pesci again, right? And then in The Wolf of Wall Street, it's Jonah Hill. Uh, they almost kind of fall into these same things, and it's it's so... I love all three of those films so much. Uh, it's fun watching it, like, completely unravel. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the fun for me, is just like, how's this guy going to just totally fuck up everything mm-hmm. where he's got nothing left, where he loses his wife, he loses his kids, he makes a complete ass of himself... And think about how all three of those films end. Um, you know, Jordan Belfort on the inspirational book tour, uh, post-prison, uh, Henry Hill in Witness Protection, and this film, this guy doing uh, his stand-up routine at a know-nothing Copacabana nightclub, right? Yeah. They end up in really bad places. And I wonder why Scorsese likes this type of story, but then maybe I don't want to know because he just does it so well. Is there any light in this movie? When he, reached, when he beats Robinson the first time, when he gets guess, the belt, yeah, he, he yeah, holds the sure, belt for two years. Sure, but he is, yeah, I think maybe uh, when he wins and he wins in the arena that he's proficient in, sure. But other than that, no way. Because let's let's talk about the, the other element in this film. So Kathy Moriarty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're hanging out at the pool, and there's this whole kind of like mafia mob thing with Frank Vincent. Speaking of Goodfellas, go get your shine box. Uh, they're trying to set up fights for him, right? To get him a shot at the title. And LaMotta, to his credit, doesn't want to go that route. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of going on here while he's getting all these other fights. And he meets this or sees this woman at the pool. Who we find out is 15 years old. 15. Which, oh my God. Yeah. And he just can't stop with it, right? He's obsessed. He's like, I must have that. Even though he's married, right? <laughs> well, he moves her out quick, doesn't he? Much like the Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, mm-hmm. in that film, he's married, and he's like, oh, my God, Margot Robbie, I must have. Uh, yep. <laughs> it's like they're trading up. Once they ascend the ladder of their profession, their current wife isn't enough. They need something hotter, faster, younger uh, to satisfy their needs. And Kathy Moriarty is an interesting choice. I mean, almost like if she feels like she's plucked out of, like, Eraserhead for me, this kind of like almost deep voice that she has while soothing is also slightly sensual. Uh, and she's really good in this film playing the foil to LaMotta's uh, abuse, which sounds terrible to say, but it starts out good, right? There's that very interesting scene where she's like, you told me never to touch you before a match, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. I need, I can't have an orgasm pre-match because that gives me that edge, right? Yeah. But come over here. I want a little something, something. And she starts kissing him all over and kissing his stomach. And he knows it's like, oh, man, like I'm getting excited and has to tell him to stop. But, like, they're good together in that regard, right? I mean, it's it's cute and a, a little romantic in only the way that LaMotta and Raging Bull can betray it to us, right? Then dumps a bunch of cold ice on his, <laughs> his crotch, right? And she comes in the bathroom and kind of keeps pushing it. Ready to go again, yeah? It's interesting. What do you think of her? She, no, I'm the, that's what I'm saying. I, I think she's interesting as, as she kind of gets involved. As she starts out as such an outsider, gets thrust into this world, much like Lorraine Baracco in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and then kind of fits, falls into domesticated life. She's the one taking care of the kids. 
and then eventually just becomes the blunt of all the abuse, right? Okay, so you just took what I was going to say. Yeah. She, in your parallelism between this film and Goodfellas, yeah, she's the Lorraine Bracco character. Yeah. The ingenue, wide-eyed, family, virginal, might we go virginal? Yeah. M- maybe not totally, but yeah. less tread on the tires than his, I guess. Mm-hmm. To what she ends up at the end, just even the, the attire that she's wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they finally have their big, big blowout where he just beats the shit out of her and his brother, mm-hmm. that is a very different Jackie than the one that we meet at the pool who just wants to go for a ride in the fancy car. Yeah. So and still it, sticks with him for a little bit. The the thing, and then go ahead, and I'll say what I say. Is this movie then a statement about the horrors of boxing and the tentacles of it poisoning everyone within its periphery, or is this the Citizen Kane like rise and fall of a man? It, maybe both. Mm-hmm. A little of both. I mean, Jake Lamotta, for all we know, has a significant brain injury that's making oh, him sure. such a psycho, right? Yeah. But I think what's different about LaMotta compared to the other two guys in those Scorsese films is there is this crazy tinge of jealousy running through him. Oh. Almost like this insecurity that he can't shake. I mean, Henry Hill, I don't care if you sleep because I'm getting my own with Debbie, Debbie Mazar, right? Mm-hmm. And same with Jordan. I mean, Jordan's banging everything left and right. He doesn't care if his wife's going out on, on him. It's But for LaMotta, the mm-hmm. thought throws him into a raging bull, right? Yeah. And I find that fascinating that this man who is the manliest of men in the ring, that's going to literally just t- beat everyone to a pulp. The, the fight kind of with Janeiro, right? He like rearranges his face. <laughs> just, because she said he was handsome. Yeah. Yeah. He just can't get over that. And the, the thought, and then we'll get into a little bit later, but Matter of fact, he he talks about that for about forty minutes in the film. Mm-hmm. She makes the mistake of. Are you gonna, okay. Now let's say you win, you beat Janeiro, yeah. which is definitely should beat him, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. They still got to give you a shot at the title. You know why? Why? Because the same thing as before. There's nobody left. There ain't nobody around. They got to give you the shot. You understand? If you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. There's no way you can lose. And you'll do it on your own just the way you wanted to do it, without any help from anybody. You understand? Just get down to 155 pounds, you fat bastard. You stop eating. What's the problem? Stop eating. That's all. You can do it. You don't understand anything. Do you understand that? You know, Joey's right. This chair is an up-and-coming fighter. He's good-looking. He's popular. You beat him now. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. What do you mean, good-looking? I'm saying good-looking. I'm saying popular. If you yeah, win... What were you to say about well, good-looking? I didn't say anything. I'm just telling you, Joey's right. Hey, what, you, what, what? What are you, an authority or what? No, thank it. Get out of here. Take the baby and get out of here. Everybody, all the sons on the diary about this. She's talking about, where did she find out he's good looking, first of all? She didn't mean nothing. Well, where's you? You can start with me now? When people are talking, you don't interrupt. It's none of your business. Especially if it's my brother and his wife. It ain't nothing to do with you. Now get out of here. Go inside. Get out of here. Take the baby inside. Come on. the grass. You see it, okay? Change your diapers. Can you see? She's gonna cry. She stinks. You make her cry. I'll make you cry. If you're a woman in this film, it's just if you open your mouth, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's just like you have no chance against these guys. She dares to make one mistake, and that's venture into the next chapter in his career. Yeah. And she's on his side. What she's saying is, mm-hmm. "You go beat this pretty good-looking guy, 
who's popular. And then you steal his popularity because you are now the one they're all talking about again. That's not what he hears, right? All it's he like, hears her say is, you want to fuck this I guy. I want to fuck that guy. Yeah, what? Yeah. Man. And, okay, so let, let's talk about this this fragile ego mm-hmm. of Jake LaMotta because you go that from that to this. <laughs> So in this fight with Billy Fox, you know, he decides to, after kind of really giving it to him and can just totally end it, right? Mm -hmm. Decides to not put up a fight and this guy beats him and then, you know, gets accused for for throwing the fight and dirty money and whatnot. And we see how fragile he is, right? Yeah. Weeping. Like a like a child in, in the yeah. arms of his his coach in the in the corner. So take those two scenes and what do we make of this this guy this character? Well, I'm gonna pitch it back to you. Yeah. I'm gonna say no to the question I'm gonna ask you. Yeah, is Lamada that dumb? I don't think he's dumb. Yeah. Do you think he's dumb? <clears throat> I think it's ego. I yeah. I don't think he's he's a bit of a meathead. Yeah. But he's not that meathead that's just like I like weights and no, no, steak. No, 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 he's no, not no, that no, guy. No, 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 no. Yeah. He's a little bit that guy, but mm-hmm. I don't think he's dumb. No. But these are dumb moves that he's making. Yeah. It has to be jumping, ego. Jumping to conclusions, right? Yeah, it's what you said. It has to be ego because if you can't take a step back and say, man, maybe I should drop this Fox guy because I haven't had any ties to the mafia up to this point and look what I've got. So why would I even want to start playing around in that area at all? Even taking meetings, whether I agree or not, just yeah. stop it. To crying like a baby over what happened. I think it is what you said, Jesse. His mm-hmm. ego is immense. Now, check that with the immense burden of carrying this ego on your shoulders the whole film and knowing that, and the race thing plays into this too, mm-hmm. that he can't beat African-American Sugar Ray Robinson and can't beat him, although they claim, I, I watched one of the the six fights. There's okay. one you can actually watch on YouTube. Yeah, uh, Maybe there's more. I just, I didn't dig that far. But I did watch the final round of that one, and those two just pummel each other. You can't get over on that guy. Mm-hmm. And that is no bullshit. That's not that's maybe a wife is sucking someone's dick as he tells her later. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. And <laughs> yeah. All that stuff's removed, yeah. and it's just mano a mano yeah. in the squared circle. This guy beats you five out of six times. So I He is your better, so period. I so I can't beat this guy, so I'm going to take it out on everyone else, right? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else is just in the way. It's just kind of an obstacle for him. And there's that other really good scene that, that kind of happens before all this where they go to the Copacabana. And then, you know, they're there out with their ladies for, you know, a good time. And he can't even relax because 
Mm-hmm. Vicky goes to talk to Frank Vincent and all the local mob people because she knew them, right? She's from the neighborhood. In a and you have to, otherwise there's problems yeah, for your family. It's if you, cur- if you, it's if, curtains, yeah, yeah, curring favor, right? And you can't just ignore the mafia don. And then the she, like, yeah, she kisses them, and it's just like this guy, and he just like can't get over it at this point. He's like, you need to follow my wife around. And if she does anything like that, like you need to stick up to her. And to Joey's credit, he does. He beats the hell out of Frank Vincent. He slams a car door on his head. Oh, that uh, might be the worst beating that anyone takes in the entire Yeah, that, film. That, that one's crazy. Little Joe Pesci really, really going after all these guys, right? It's pretty great. But yeah, all of it's really taking its toll. And, you know, eventually, you know, he does get his shot at the, we're in the middleweight, right? Yeah. He, he gets a shot at the middleweight, and he wins handedly, right? French guy. Yeah. And he holds it for two years. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many fights he had in that two years, but if you're fighting 106, I would imagine there were several defenses in there. But in that time, he really lets himself go a little bit. Not to where we see him at the uh, beginning and end of the film, but he's got a bit of a beer belly here, right? So in the little bit of, of study in LaMotta that I did prior to show, in mm-hmm. this particular period for him, they said that, other than Robinson, and and Joey's right, the rest of the cast in the middleweight division is so bad that his greatest battles occurred inside and outside of the kitchen, dropping the pounds in between fights in order to get weight eligible to mm. defend the belt properly. Mm. So, you know, that's an issue for Lamotta is what he's putting in his face. And, and Joey kind of teases him earlier about it, you fat bastard. But at this point in his two-year reign as champion before he's going to lose it again to Robinson. Mm-hmm. His biggest battles occur with the the fork and the knife. Yeah, undisciplined. You had a question, speaking of fork and knives and working in restaurants, you had a story about Pesci that I want you to tell. Oh, it was interesting. Just like, you know, Pesci had been in films prior to this, but hadn't acted for about five years. And so what, what did he do before this? Do you know? Did you look it up? Just, it's got to be like real B film, nothing we've ever seen, right? Okay. You know, they plucked him. He was working in an Italian restaurant, <laughs> waiting over tables. Did he wait on? Did he wait on Scorsese? And in the kitchens, no. There's just the, he went to the casting call, and he's the one that actually recommended Kathy Moriarty from like this kind of acting collective that they were a part of that he knew of. Wow. But mostly unknown, right? This is like the first, like this is the first Pesci Pesci that I think like we ever got our hands on, mm-hmm. and he's really good with his veneers and that weird smile that he has and and his hair. Uh, he's really good in this in this film, but that's crazy, right? I mean, Joe Pesci that we know, I mean, pre-Raging Bull was just, I'm just working at an Olive Garden. <laughs> exactly, I'm just a guy. Yeah, doing nothing. Ah, it's just, yeah, the, the road, and I'll, I'll mention a little bit more a little bit later, but how everyone kind of came to this thing was just pretty crazy, and how they poured their heart and soul into into this, like, it was the last thing they were ever going to make. It's just, it's, it's wild. But you guys hear that everybody, all of you struggling actors listening to this podcast in LA or New York, working at a California pizza kitchen, keep that dream alive, man, because you're going to get casting call one day and it's going to happen for you. Yeah. You never know when, right. To you guys. Uh, no, I think, I, I think that's, that's, that's very remarkable. And yeah, this post championship glut <laughs> at Lamada's in glut or gut both. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the same shit comes up. By you know. So, what does that mean? Yeah, mean but even, even you don't even know what you meant by you. I mean, not Joey. That meant something. 
You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salvi, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. Mm. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Just tell me. I'm not answering you. I'm not gonna answer that. It's stupid. You're very smart, Joey. You give me all these answers, but you ain't give me the right answer. It's hard to listen to. Yeah. I'll make sure again. Doesn't let it go. Did you or did you not? I'm not gonna answer. It's a sick question, you're a sick fuck, and I'm not that sick that I'm gonna answer it. I'm not telling you anything. I'm gonna leave. If Lenore calls, tell her I went home. I'm not staying in this nut house with you. You're a sick bastard. I feel sorry for you, I really do. You know what you should do? Try a little more fucking, a little less eating. You won't have troubles upstairs in your bedroom, and you won't pick it out on me and everybody else. Oof. You understand, you fucking wacko? You're cracking up. He just can't drop it, right? No. Until he... You may as well just say, yeah, I did. That way we can move on or just beat the hell out of me now. That way we can move on. But not saying anything, no answers, bad answer. And boy, does he let everyone have it. He goes to his wife, slaps her around, breaks down the bathroom door, slaps her around some more, accuses her of being a whore around the neighborhood. And you sucked off everyone left and right, my brother. And then so drags her by her hair, essentially down the street, slaps her a couple more times on the pavement and then goes into his brother's house where him and his wife and his kids are eating breakfast. I mean, that house life isn't amazing either. Uh, beats the hell out of his brother in front of the kids, slaps the wife around, slaps his sister-in-law around. I mean, this is rough stuff. <laughs> yeah, all hell is breaking loose. Yeah. You know what's weird about this too? Yeah. All hell is breaking loose if our contention that this man's ego is what's his driving force. All hell is breaking loose like we haven't seen it break loose. At the height of his powers, as he would perceive himself as champion, yeah, thought by others. Like when he thinks this is what others must think of me, because this is the lens I'm looking through at me. Mm-hmm. I'm champion, I'm wealthy, I'm all of these things, and he is at his most vulnerable. Is it because nothing's happening in the ring? No, because he's still taking fights. Mm-hmm. So it's very puzzling, other than brain damage. Yeah. Why at this particular moment, the dam breaks on the fidelity levy that's holding back these rivers that are going to just oh, yeah. rip everything apart. He's yeah. he's the champion, Jesse. Yeah, something's got to give at this point. And you can't be better than the champion. Yeah. And his ego should be sated. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Because mm-hmm. maybe Joey's right. Mm-hmm. You've cracked up. You are off the rails, batshit crazy. Yeah. Isn't that a weird term, batshit crazy? Yeah. Does Guano make you crazy? I don't know, baby. <laughs> it's such a, I just, that a, what? Yeah, yeah well, I've always heard it, right? Yeah. That's bad shit. I've heard crazy as a rat in a tin shit house, and I get that because they just climb the walls. Yeah. But, um. Anyway, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, it doesn't some, seem to jive. Yeah. And yeah, so he just, he just lets his brother have it, right? And that's, that's kind of the end of them for a while, at least. Uh, it's rough. It's this rough stuff. And, you know, here we got title defenses and here we go with Sugar Ray one, one last time. 
And let's see what this has. And the way the film portrays it, I don't know how it reflects the actual fight, but if this was Scorsese's like pure intention to show it to us in this perspective, this is interesting. I have sound for this. I want everyone to pay attention to the sound of the fight. And then we'll kind of we'll kind of break it down. if I played that initial kind of first 50 seconds of that and I told you what type of movie do you think this is probably going to say either this is a war movie or a horror film Mm -hmm. not a boxing movie there's nothing glamorous or sports or athletic or competitive about what's there that's just one man pummeling another man to death essentially Mm -hmm. it's violent it's visceral it the, the, the it's the camera flash bulbs that really get to me that like, breaking sound that they all make. Well, it sounds like someone being stabbed a little bit. I thought plates falling, like domestic plates. Falling. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, and then, the, and then when you do, and you when you put the images together with that, and you just blood's just squirting it. I mean, I think the the announcers get squirted with the, mm-hmm. the, the spray of blade. I mean, it's gruesome. Uh, and then, yeah, that kill shot is is remarkable. But the way Scorsese decides to portray this last fight, I think, is pretty interesting because it's almost like. Lamadas, I can't beat this guy. I there's no I I just can't do it. There's just no way. Uh, mm-hmm. so I'm just gonna let him beat me to a pulp, and I won't let him have the satisfaction of you never TKO'd me right because he's knocked Ray down a couple times in the fights right, and there's like first time Ray's ever been knocked like it's like Creed right mm-hmm. Creed's never been knocked down before. Yep. He's not going to let him have the satisfaction of you never put me on the mat. And I think, you know, to Lamada's credit, as psychotic as a strategy as that is, and if that's pride and ego talking again, mm. it's crazy and remarkable at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, because he's getting pummeled. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of that? The way Scorsese shoots it, the way it's edited, and we'll talk about the editing later. His long editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, does an amazing job at this. 
this is something else. This is it's not a boxing movie anymore. It's we're, we're getting out of the genre. This violent canvas is painted beautifully with his blood. Mm-hmm. I think the choreography in this movie is as good as you can have in a boxing film. It has to do with the tight angles and the way Scorsese sets the camera. But every one of the punches that these guys are taking or throwing, you can feel the sound is well done. And that's terrific editing. Because if it's off by just a hair, then it doesn't play. Yeah. It has to feel fast paced and kinetic, right? Right. Simultaneous to contact. Mm -hmm. That one slow motion where Sugar Ray, the kill shot, is heavily illuminated from behind, almost in this glorious or maybe vainglorious moment. It, it's akin to me of a crucifixion because then oh, you nice. look at the way De Niro is sort of situated on the ropes, not quite crucified because it's not two arms. He's got one arm hanging on the rope and the other one's sort of trying to maybe block, I don't know mm-hmm. what. Yeah, <laughs> nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and then it's brought down from above, heavily, heavy backlit, like, oh. I, dare I say beautifully done? Yeah. And that's weird because in a movie that lacks a lot of beauty save the montage right after he gets married. Oh yeah. The, and they go color for a little bit juxtaposed against his fight. So in, the, the, in like eight millimeter, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like eight millimeter honey moon footage or early, just like Goodfellas. Remember they have mm-hmm. the post wedding mm-hmm. photo montage. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to that. Yeah. But then the fights that he's taking are still black and white. So you're getting yeah, that's good. a little bit of light in Lamada's life, maybe a bit of joy because it's colorized, but it's really not, it's still eight millimeter and pretty, not, not very pretty. This is still grim, gritty, gray, black and white, but the way it's shot is super artistic. And there's where the brilliance of Scorsese starts to come through. I love it. I, what I love about it too, is it doesn't comes feel, through a lot, but yeah. here, I mean, this visually is on display. It doesn't feel like reality, right? This yeah. feels like hyper, like exaggerated, but it fits the story and the characters so well. Like nowhere in a boxing match are you going to see a boxer raise his hand like this. You would never have the time. You'd get popped. Yeah, to deliver a kill shot, but... You leave yourself wide open. I love how it's portrayed, and it's just, it's in the vein of endurance. Mm-hmm. Which the, is really his story. Yeah. The the, the one, uh, the, the championship bout against Marcel, mm-hmm. can't remember his last name, but... Yeah. I've always remembered that camera angle too, because that is initially, because for whatever reason, he's just taking punches again, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, the the camera's outside the ring. It's You see the ropes were not in the ring with the fighters, and he's just kind of taking it like, Ugh. and then when he decides to engage, the camera like sweeps underneath the ropes into the ring with them, and now he's ready to fight. Mm-hmm. I've always really remembered that with this film, like a uh, passive and active camera is essentially a character in the film it mm, becomes good uh but that's that's all scorsese that's him telling you just sweep it in under there i mean the guy uses a camera better than most filmmakers Raimi's up there uh scorsese's you know up there for me as well that's good so good catch but then we cut to 1950 yeah 52 early 50s there's a throwaway line in here of what movie did you go see? Father of the Bride. Hey, that was a nominee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Miami. Uh, and then we cut to Jake. And psh, what was this guy? Looking rough. 350? Oh, I don't know about Yeah, he's heavy. Very heavy. heavy. Compared to lean LaMotta. Mm-hmm. 
which the lean De Niro in this thing looks pretty good, right? Yeah. But, oh, my God, and he got big. And working at some sleazy club. Jake LaMotta's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, yeah Jake LaMotta's, plural. Doing this shtick, right? This no-nonsense, non-acting monologue stand-up routine that yeah. I guess is enough to get a rise out of his ego. Because mm-hmm. he's the has-been now, right? He's not the champion. He's not the boxing. All he, This is the athlete that waxes on poetically about that touchdown pass in high school, right? Right. Reliving the glory days as a 350-pound schlub. Mm. Somehow still married to his wife after he apologized, I guess, for beating the hell out of her. Because it only happened once. Yeah. Right. That was happening weekly, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. But that's, he's still, maybe, maybe the stupidity, maybe there's something to that. It's just not enough for him. And I mean, now is when he wants to act out on his wife, step out on her. With a 14-year-old girl this time? Well, a conquest, right? Yeah. But he's also got a thing for young women. Trading up again, but... Or trading in for... Or, for what I guess what's told to him is, I think he sees the idea and she's, yeah, 20 or 18 or whatever. That's good enough for me. She can kiss like that. She's got to be 21. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man, that's gross. That's that's an icky line. How would you know? And then the cops come the next morning and are like, yeah, this girl, have you seen her before? No. She's 14. Mm. Ugh, that's pretty gross. That's, that's pretty gross. Pretty gross. So there they take him to the cell. And okay, so if the sound was off-putting in the last clip, I, I don't know what to make of this. Mm. <laughs> I feel every single one of those punches on that concrete wall, man. Mm-hmm. Just the head, just why, why, why? That's great sound mixing and editing. Oh, my God. Because yeah. uh, De Niro's not really going to do that. At least I didn't think so, because you might be dead after something like that. Yeah. Protect your brain, everybody. I mean, it's the only one you got. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> PSA. Yeah, that's the PSA for today. Oh, my God. And prior to that, he tries to bribe his way out of this crazy situation by going. His wife's already thrown him out of the house. Breaks in, goes to his championship belt, and tries to pry the jewels off to take to a pawn shop to pony up $10,000. Dude, this guy's to me, bail. desperate. Instead of just taking the belt in. Oh, God, yeah. That's what kills me yeah. is... He wants some semblance of that still. The guy said, man, if you brought the belt in, I could have given you much more, but just the jewels. Who gives a damn? He can't let that go. 
he can't let that go. Yeah. God, he can't let that go. Yeah, this is this is rough. Yeah, if you thought the film was going to end on a happy note, I just I don't got anything for you. Uh, but yeah, to De Niro, this is a really intense and volatile performance, and you know, De Niro slays it, especially in that scene. Again, you see that fragile just ego just come to the forefront. With he's reduced to crying again, right? Mm-hmm. This is how he responds to things and reacts to things. When it gets so overwhelming for him, I'm just going to sit and weep. It's silly to say the man's troubled because that's so on the nose and understated, but he's really been troubled the whole time. And much like his hands in the shattered state that they are in post beating the hell out of the wall. I don't don't even want to know. They're broken. They have to be. So is he though. Yeah. His hands aren't working anymore. And that's been an issue. goes back to the sound you said with Joey. Like I have these tiny little hands. I just can only do so much damage with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> and right, yeah. yeah. Can Matt? Could you imagine? Yeah. I can't imagine those things are ever going to be worth a damn again after the sh- the the pounding they just took on this this brick wall, much less his head. To where, again, he takes it to a point like he just can't stop until there's nothing left, and then all that's left is remorse or regret, whether it's his wife or his boxing career. I mean, think about that that line that you played earlier when he talks to Ray. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ray, you never got me you down. Never got and me he down. beat the ever-loving hell out of you. He closed your eyes instantly. <laughs> he closed your eyes. He ended your, like, this man has ended your career five different times. Yeah. And you're taking it. And I guess that's noble. You didn't take me down. You almost have to wonder if Ray would said, yeah, but Jake, you didn't beat me. Yeah, yeah. You know, you beat us by 50, but you didn't dunk on us. <laughs> okay but we beat the hell out of you. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you credit. You're not, you know, you have some tall people and we can't dunk on you or you have a rock solid chin and we can't take you down. But that's also yeah, Ray, Ray's, not exactly a compliment. Ray's not going up to, to LaMotta like Johnny Lawrence did to Danny LaRusso at the end of the credit. You're all right, LaRusso. He ain't doing that. There's no tact. Yeah. And in the boxing world, Tact would be the able the ability to escape or maneuver or defend or actually practice the sweet science known as boxing. This is just a brawler. He's really good at it, mm-hmm. and that will get you so far, but that has a limit. Because if you take, and, and Ray Robinson had some challenge in his life too. This mm-hmm. is not some, some choir boy either. Yeah, we're getting a snapshot of that guy. Yeah. yeah. But if you take the nuanced style that he fights then it's easy to deduce, like, I can see where he's champion because I think that's more representative of life's work than in the ring's work in this film. And if you believe the stealing of the jewels to pawn off, but I can't quite give away the belt because that's what I work so hard for, then the movie is admitting as much. There's no nuance. It's just, I'm going to run through that wall until either the wall gives or I give. But eventually... You run out of energy and the walls just are built better. And without a ladder or a way to go underneath or around, or I don't know, cut a door, you just pummel yourself into oblivion. And thus is the story of Lamada and the, the weeping state. It's not just the fighting. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an admission to everything that he has. But do you think the, the boxing has taken a toll? Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't know if he's ever stable yeah, or kind. Yeah. That's why he needed two guys to help him write his biography. <laughs> yeah, probably beat the shit out of one of them. But by the time the movie's done, any semblance of, of reasonable LaMotta is long sure, gone. Sure, yeah. I mean, because 
it's not just the food. He's drinking with that too. I'm not yeah. saying he's an alcoholic, That's but a hard lifestyle, man. You you can't cycle like that Mm-mm. in athletics. Mm-hmm. In any you, realm of life. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to be couch potato fat guy or whatever, then I guess you can and you don't ever have a desire to fix it, then go for it and you'll you'll deal with that at the end of that story. Mm-hmm. But if you go from fight, pig out, three weeks later I have another fight, fast for days. Mm-hmm. Like that that peaking and valleying that is also emblematic in his relationships, his brother, his wife, his friends, his managers, his boxing opponents. It just takes a toll. Yeah. There's and I don't even want to say he's not balanced because there is balance. There's some success and some failure. Yeah. He needs he needs less balance. He needs just just complacency, just like steady. So do you think the title of the film fits the man? Perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Because bulls are hard to wrangle, right? Oh my god, yes! It's just you—you you see bull riding competitions, and the second they get out of the thing, they start bucking and hooting and hollering, right? I yeah. mean, it's hard to stay on them. And well, think about bullfights in Mexico. What Incha yeah. does the bull is he bleeds out because yeah. he can't recognize that he's already been wounded, mortally wounded before the fight even begins. Yeah, and as he's running around and he's just pumping, 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 the blood eventually, yeah. most of the time before the the um, Matador kills the bull, mm-hmm. they bleed out. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Well, yeah. It's a perfect title, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. We get the most tragic scene, I think, of the entire film right after this. So sometime later, he like is on the streets in New York and runs into Joey, Joe Pesci again. They haven't seen each other since that beat down in the house. Mm-hmm. And here's fat, pudgy LaMotta. I think trying to reconcile for real, I imagine that day. Cause he has nothing left, right? That moment. His wife's gone. He has no kids. He has no money. He's a sexual deviant. Yeah. I got blood. I got family left. So I think there's a genuine affect to make amends and man, Joey ain't having any part of that. And I think that's the sad part is that embrace is like, you know, hug me, embrace me. And Joey's just like, I need you to get away from me. But he doesn't quite say that. It's just, it, it's all in Pesci's body language of, I can't embrace you like that after what you did to me and accuse me of, right? Yeah. Oh, that, that might be the saddest part of the movie. Is he going to Joey because he has nothing left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also pretty pathetic. Yeah. But think of 1958, I think, when that happens. No social media, no cell phones. You, I happened to run into my brother. Mm-hmm. I, this is my opportunity. I got to make the most of it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know where he was. You'll call, won't you? Don't forget. I won't forget. You know he's going to forget. He forgot. Yeah, I, he there's forgot. no repairing that at all, no. I, I think. Yeah, it's... And I think from Joey's point of view, who isn't a great guy either, but by all standards, much more likable than than um, Jake LaMotta. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah, no. It's just the cycle of abuse. It'll repeat itself. Let me ask you a question. If... If things are, if you're rough, it's like say your life goes, gets spun out of control for yeah. some reason. And it's that time. And you know LaMotta. Mm-hmm. Do you trust that he's got your back? No. I don't either. I don't think so. That's damning. Like mm-hmm. I trust that Joey for the most part would. Mm-hmm. I don't trust LaMotta has my back at all. Yeah. Rarely in film do I see the protagonist, quotes around the protagonist, mm-hmm. have that trait. The guy's a shithead, man. Yeah. You and I are sitting here. Mm-hmm. What I want to maybe go have a beer with him, maybe a hear about a fight. 
Yeah, until then he got shitty and started putting you down and saying things about your mother and whatever. Just try yeah. to get you into another fight so you could feed that ego of his. Yeah, exactly. But if if things are if things have gone south, no way. Rocky's got my back. Yeah, Jake Lamotta doesn't have my back. No way. Yeah. Fuck, Clubber Lang might have my back a little bit more than yeah. Lamotta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think you could probably count mm-hmm. on the steadiness of Drago more than you could count on. Lamada, like yeah. you know what you're gonna get with Drago. Once you're in with Drago, you're in. What do you think of that then? You know, because Rocky and for the most part, all those fictitious characters, right? Mm-hmm. Scorsese's penchant to really explore real people in this very hyper realistic way. Because Jordan Belfort's a real man, mm-hmm. Henry Hill's a real man, mm-hmm. and so's Jake Lamada. I know biopics are Tricky as hell, because where's the truth and where's the fiction? But what do you think of Scorsese's ability to deliver this product to us? Oh, we got the Aviator too, right? Oh, yeah. Hughes? Great. And he picks really interesting characters. Like, off the beaten path, people that we that are kind of not on our radar, right? Yeah. So, um, it's hard not to recognize his ability to find that story about, and every writer has hey, you should hear the story about my uncle. Like, there's always that uncle. To find the uncle that actually someone's going to give a damn about. Mm -hmm. He could have done Marciano. Yeah. He could have done a lot of different people. He chose La Mata. Mm -hmm. And Marciano's undefeated. Like, as far as I know, eh, maybe, what's his name? Um, Is there another fighter that's undefeated? Yeah, I think there's one more. Um, Oh, God, do you know the guy that's, this uncle is the guy that trains Creed in Creed II. Um, Floyd Mayweather. Mm. I don't think Floyd Mayweather's ever been beat, has he? I don't know. I think he's undefeated too. But regardless, Masiano's undefeated. Yeah. 49 and 0? No, I don't want to tell that story. Mm-hmm. It's too pretty. It's too clean. Too clean. Maybe. Yeah. Let's tell this other one. I need grit. This dude fought 109 fights, and this guy beat him five times. But he fought more people outside of the ring. <laughs> the fights with his wife, he probably fought 150 times. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, to Scorsese's credit, I mean, in terms of tackling a biopic, I mean, I might not want anybody better than him to, to tell it in his way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so then we wrap up with the final scene. We kind of kept, we bookend the film. We're kind of where we started, right? In, man, dude, if Paul Thomas Anderson ever cribbed anything from anything, <laughs> the end of Boogie Nights is Raging Bull, right? Yep. Some people aren't that lucky. Like the one... The Marlon Brando played in On the Waterfront, an up-and-comer who's now a down-and-outer. You remember that scene in the back of the car with his brother Charlie, a small-time racket guy, and it went something like this. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. You remember that night at the garden, you came down my dressing room and you said, kid, this ain't your night, we're going for the price on Wilson. Remember that? This ain't your night, my night. I could have taken Wilson apart that night. So what happens? He gets a title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. I was never no good after that night, Charlie. It was like a peak you reach, and then it's downhill. It was you, Charlie. You was my brother. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have looked out for me just a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit instead of making me take them dice for the short end money. You don't understand. 
I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. It was you, Charlie. How you doing, Jake? Everything all right? Yeah. Ready? You got about five minutes. Okay. You need anything? Nah. You sure? I'm sure. A lot of people out there. Yeah, it's crowded. I never noticed this until just now, but the guy's like wheezing through every one of those line deliveries. I wonder if De Niro had to go see a doctor for like how unhealthy he had really gotten. Yeah. He's struggling through all of that. And I think that's what makes it so good is just, he's not a good actor. De Niro's a good actor portraying LaMotta trying to pretend to like deliver these monologues. You're just saying what I think of what I was thinking. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you saw the banner, but it was like a night with Patty Chayefsky, Rod Serling. Like, dude, what's he doing from the Twilight Zone? Yeah. Uh, and just struggling. And he really sucks at it. And it's just, it's very pathetic. Uh, and then him having to kind of like psych himself up a little bit, like ooh, ooh, a little bit of that, mm-hmm. right? You're the boss. You're the boss. You're the boss. You're the boss. And it's just, this is this shell of a man that was heavyweight champ or middleweight champion. De Niro doing LaMotta, doing Brando, mm. doing Kazan. Dude, we're four layers deep. This is the inception of monologues. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty great, yeah. That shows De Niro's acting chops mm-hmm. right there, doesn't it? I love that it's that speech, too. It could yeah. be anything, but I love that it's that speech from the, on the waterfront. Yeah, good stuff. That's such a loaded, loaded delivery, and I think that's that's Brando at his best, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Someday we'll do that movie, yeah. won't we? Yeah. But... Uh, him butchering it the way he is, but just grinding through it to the chagrin of everybody and the hard-headedness and wreckage that occurs along the way. Done is, through a mirror, right? Yeah. Is so him. Yeah. And and also pathetic. Yeah. Nobody wants to see LaMotta go do on the waterfront. No. Nobody wants no, to see that. No, 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 no. Who yeah. the hell wants to see that? Mm-hmm. You know what they want is a good story from the rings probably. Yeah. They don't want to see you do time enough at last from the Twilight Zone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is his goal? We don't I mean, want Richard the Third. We don't want Macbeth. We don't want, you know, oh, that this too, too solid flesh should melt. We don't want any of that. We just want you to go tell us some stories about what it was like in the ring against Sugar Ray Robinson yeah, or yeah. you name it. What Rocky does in Rocky Balboa, right? At Adrian's. At Adrian's. Tell us the story of yeah. Super Fight 2. Sure. Why not? <laughs> This is sad. It's it's really sad. And mm-hmm. then uh, you, you and you you do see the parallels. Another rise and fall story with Dirk Diggler and Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. I gotta psych myself up before I go do this porn scene, right? Yeah, it's performing. He's doing a, a performance as well. I just love that it's in a mirror, right? It's just yeah. like who's that person that I'm looking at? Mm-hmm. It's a shell of a former self. Really good. Great. Great ending. Yeah. And 
What did you think of, I forgot about this. There's like this like Bible quote at the end of the film and then uh-huh. Scorsese like dedicates it to a teacher of his. Yeah. I got to dig into that a little bit more. I wasn't ready to like fully divulge into like what that, and I'm sure he's talked about it, but something there as well. You had a story about Scorsese, life, death, that kind of thing. Let's hear it. Post-taxi driver. I didn't realize that Scorsese was quite the partier or indulger of narcotics that he was, but... Cocaine, probably. Guy almost killed himself. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, he's in a hospital bed. And prior to that, De Niro first read the biography on the set of Godfather Part Two. How apt is that? Mm-hmm. I'm delivering another amazing performance and I'm reading about something else I'm going to just totally slay, right? Yeah. And didn't know how quite to to get it together. But yeah, Scorsese in the hospital like oh, nearly died. And here De Niro, good friends, I imagine. They've made, I think, three or three movies together already. Mean Streets. Uh, mean Streets, uh, Taxi Driver, and one of their like, quieter ones. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look it up here in a second. Yeah. And says, dude, Marty, you almost died. What are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing with your life? And if you if you want to have something, if you want to survive, you got to do this film. If you don't, you're going to die. If you keep on this trajectory, the Che Clamata trajectory, as you will. And so uh, Scorsese, who had <clears throat> been approached this offer before, at that time didn't want to do it, but now saw a lot of significance in the story compared to his life, right? Mm-hmm adversity and an overindulgence in certain lifestyles and was like now's the time to do it and essentially went all in and said i don't think i'm gonna ever make another movie again so i'm gonna put it all out there and i think it's there on the screen for as much a form of rehab for scorsese as it was for anybody else to make this film the way it looks and feels Mm mm-hmm I, I never knew that. I just, you know, I kind of always thought the guy was just kind of that, yeah, this New York guy, and just kind of like this. I, I never knew, but of course, right. I mean, 70s filmmaking, you're going to imbibe a little bit. Sure. So, just crazy. And then the film comes out, everyone kind of hates it because it's so violent. It's not pleasant. It's uh, not a fun time. I think $18 million budget, which is a little high, $26 million gross. So not even saw. not even really making a much of a profit for anyone. Doesn't it? De Niro wins Best Actor and Thelma Schoonmaker wins Best Editing. I'm glad she won, but kind of it. And then as the years go on, it starts kind of being regarded in the circles. Now I think in the AFI first hundred, I think it was like 26, upper 20s, and then in that redo 10 years later, it went moved up to four, right? Mm-hmm. I think I'm okay with it being a 26. I don't know if it gets all the way to four. Yeah. And I'll get a little into that, into the, into the ratings. But before that, a couple questions. Uh, what's your, do you have a favorite tasting note of Raging Bull? I think the choreography in that fight that you played with Sugar Ray Robinson with the kill shot is, is superb. Um, really quiet, save some of the, the background noise that, just paints the damage that this man is taking and sort of the futility of it all, really. For both of them, Sugar Ray Robinson can beat this guy to a pulp a hundred times. He's going to come back to the hundred and first time, but the off chance, maybe he lands one. When you get to the boxing movie, 
all of the character stuff matters, but what we mostly care about is what the action looks like in the ring. And I think that that is as good as it gets in the entire film. So I'm going to give it to that moment. Good choice. That was the thing I forgot to mention was De Niro around the time of training with the real LaMotta, right? Learning to learning about the guy trying to be the guy. He entered himself into a couple fights and actually won two middleweight bouts. Really? Like as De Niro, De Niro. So Mm. he learned a little something. And was willing to put his body, I guess, man, talk about method. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go actually box. Yeah. Uh, and when two of the three fights that he entered, I, that's that's kudos, man. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. Big props. Tell me what time I need to be on set. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to pick the opening fight because I think it really sets the stage of the uh, visceral style that Scorsese is going to go with with the boxing, but how that's going to just trickle down into the rest of the film. Um it's a good way to start, um, and I think you get it. I think everyone gets, it's going to be this type of movie, right? Mm-hmm. Holy cow, what are we picking for the... Oh, my God! ...moment of this film. It's got to be the part when he destroys his family, his wife and his yeah, brother. That's pretty... Watching that is hard, and it just keeps going. Starts in his house, goes down the street, ends up in his brother's house. It just keeps going. You know what always trips me out about scenes like that and like people in that space that are, I guess, okay with just beating their family in the streets, right? They just don't care who watches, right? At that point, mm-hmm. public image be damned, police be damned, arrest me, I don't give a shit. Uh, and just keeps going about it. That's kind of sick, right? It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's messed up. Yeah. I think I got to pick your uh, tasty note moment. That kill shot from Robinson. I'm telling you, I'm being honest. I think it turns into a horror film at that point. It's a slashing mm-hmm. in the age of the golden age of slide. I mean, Friday the 13th is coming out in 80 as well. This guy may as well have a knife instead of a boxing glove. Yeah. Brutal. It's, I, I think I watched, I watched it two times through. Cause I was just like, I got to see that again. Blood spewing everywhere. And it, it's just Robinson like really reddening up. And they do the the vertigo, the Roy Scheider shot, right? Mm-hmm. They pull back and stretch it. And Lamada's like, come on, man. Come get come get some. Okay. That's rough. I mean, just and then you know, and then his eyes are just Rocky Balboa eyes. You never got me down, Ray. Like, if that was your end goal, so be it. But I ain't putting my body through that. Right. I've never had my eye closed shut like that, but that's gotta hurt like hell. Mm. Ouch. Yeah. How do you, I mean, it would hurt to sleep. Yeah. It, yeah. If you could even see your way to the bed. His <laughs> eyes are literally closed. Lead me to the bed, please. God dang, man. Oof. Who's the master distiller on Raging Bull? Oh. Probably Scorsese. Um, I don't want to say it's brave to do this because I think boxing had pretty well been established as a viable Hollywood property, but there was significant blowback from Rocky from the Hollywood elites. And I don't think Scorsese's ever pandered to them. And I think that was why it took him so long to kind of win. Dude, he's still not pandering. He's kind of middle fingered them his whole life. Good for him. All the stuff that he says, rightly so, I think about like Marvel films Mm -hmm. being kind of factory cookie cutter is right controversial amongst comic book fans that people that love those things, but he, he's got a point, right? He, he kind of knows what he's talking about. So to do it your way, his way. And then dude, he did it the Frank Sinatra way. Yeah. Didn't he? <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be him. And then to pick kind of, I don't want to say a loser because Lamada is not a loser boxing wise life. I probably would maybe say so. Yeah. 
But to do that story, he didn't do the pretty Marciano story. He didn't do the pretty um, Joe Lewis story. He didn't do the pretty Muhammad Ali story, although that's not really that pretty. Yeah. You get where I'm going. Pretty. He He did kind of a champ for a little while story. Yeah. That's ballsy. Interesting. Unapologetic and just here it is. I'm going to tell you the story and maybe you like it. Maybe you won't. Here it is. There you go. Uh, I got to give it to De Niro. I mean, up there with uh, Pacino and Godfather Part 2, Anthony Perkins and Psycho, Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. This is up there in terms of acting performances. What you're, A, willing to put your body through physically to totally transform it over. I mean, I I don't know if he made a movie between this and The King of Comedy in 83 with Scorsese, which I revisited, which is amazing, by the way. He had to have taken some time off to just, I got to fix my body for what I put it through, right? Maybe, yeah. But it's volatile, it's violent, it's rough, it's out of control, and man, I dig every second of it. Uh, it's, it's De Niro's one of our best actors. This, is, it, I think, is his best performance. Okay, good, yeah. How are you going to rate and grade? This This will be interesting. How are you going to rate and grade Raging Bull? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf, and then A, Matt, we also have to address... Did this deserve to win Best Picture over Ordinary People? Where are you going? It's just call for me. Um, it's a it's a great movie. It's made really well. I don't ever need to watch this film again. And in 2023, with all the boxing films that have been done and the story of LaMotta, it plays, it didn't at the time, but I don't think this film has aged story-wise really well. I think technically it's it's superb still. Um, you know, I gave this some thought. Mm-hmm. And this is, I'm not sliding this film. Again, I don't even dislike this film. I just, I, I don't love this film. It's fine. It's, it's just, it's a, fu- it's a, it's a solid good film. I love boxing movies. Yeah. But this isn't even my fourth favorite boxing film. Yeah. So... <sighs> And if, if you want to go that route, it's either one or two of Rocky, mm-hmm. Southpaw, probably Cinderella Man, Creed, Hurricane, Creed One, Creed Two, and then maybe this. Yeah. Like this makes the top ten. Um, now that doesn't mean that those all are amazing films that I just rattled off, but uh, it's in. <laughs> It's not even an average endeavor. Like the lengths that they went to make this film are are remarkable. And noteworthy. This story just plays out exactly kind of like I think it should play out with the trope. And I don't even want to say on the nose because it's the guy's life. So that's how his life was led. Can you mm-hmm. see someone's life was on the nose? What a terrible thing to say to someone. Yeah. And I wasn't looking for some twist in a boxing movie. And there is plenty of twists. He gets his ass beat a lot. That's yeah. the twist. How much damage can this guy take? Mm-hmm. It, it's a really good film. Um, I just find it on the entertainment thing, <laughs> sadly, a little bit low. Sure. I, yeah, right. so it's 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 a good solid just call for me. What about best picture? Do you want to do your rating first, and then I'll go and then we'll do talk that first? about it. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, look, I'm going to go top shelf, but this is a film I uh, it's it's a real raw top shelf this is a film I can only watch once every five years if I'm gonna put myself through that right I can watch Rocky every single day of my life if I was told I had to do that mm-hmm. this is just it's not pleasant it's not a pleasant experience it's rough it's kind of disgusting it's it's intense it's not fun 
entertainment wise, like, would you rather watch the underdog story of the guy that could maybe be a champ? Or do you want to watch this abusive, volatile story of Jake LaMotta? Probably the, the, the underdog story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a hard sell for anybody, but I can't escape its technical proficiency. Scorsese slays. The editing's amazing. The performances are great. It's an upper echelon film. It's I would put it in my top hundred films. There's a couple of Scorsese's floating around in there. Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, this one, but not a film I can watch all the time. There's just there's just no way. I'd rather watch a, a lot of the films that you Creed and Hurricane. I'd rather watch those instead. Um, but I can't deny. I can't deny its power. Uh, I won't say number four on AFI, but I'm okay with upper twenties. I'm that I, that feels okay to me. I think I, I still prefer Goodfellas over this. Um, as a, de- a descent into debauchery, right? Um, but I'm with you in the entertainment thing. Uh, so let's kind of address the cask at hand. Ordinary people wins best picture. We shoved this into this episode to make the argument. I think the answer, I think, for both of us is n- neither film is our best picture because the best picture of that year is in a galaxy far, far away. It's yeah, the Empire Strikes Back, which. We'll talk about in the next two weeks about genre pieces not getting their due with the top award, right? I right. think we'll have a lot to say about that, but that's the best film of 80 yeah, by a long shot. Yeah. The more I think about ordinary people, it kind of grows a little bit the more I think about that story and how we broke it down last week. I think I give Raging Bull a slight edge, but I think it's a little closer than pre-talking about this cast for me. I agree with all that. Mm-hmm. It, I agree. It's Empire Strikes Back, and that's a landslide win for me. Yeah. Here's the one I want to give you, and we're not going to spend another week in the 1980s because I'm ready to move on to something that smiles once in a while. Is The Elephant Man I, better than both? It might. We might give it consideration. Yeah. Lynchian weird, also biopic, off-putting, but humanistic? Yep. If that, That's not a word, but it is today. Yeah, I think we might have a three-horse race for this one. And you're right. Yeah, we're not going to stick around for another week, but just maybe. Yeah, so I guess I don't... I I will say this. Even after we spent a lot longer talking about ordinary people than I thought we were going to talk about it last week, yeah, I have found myself going back and thinking about moments in that film continually from last week till now. Like, yeah. there's still things I'm still thinking about. Interesting, right? Um, and if that is the strength of ordinary people, and that gets back to the conversation we had last week, which was, is average Joe moviegoer looking for a think piece? And is the Academy Award given to that film by the Hollywood elites based on the heavy moral compass that this movie, which I don't know if I believe any of that. Yeah. And I don't even know if that makes something a better picture, but I can say as heavy as Raging Bull is, the weight of ordinary people for being also a biopic about things that people live through all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tragedy. Yeah. Might. Oh God. Am I really about to say this? Man, I guess I am. It might slightly. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a dead heat with these two and maybe every Sixth or seventh time with the favorable lane assignment, this one just edges it out at the tape. Maybe. I say that today, maybe. Maybe. I don't want to watch any one of them either soon, never again. I need Empire 
fed into my veins like daily. But these two, yeah, that's hard to, to revisit. But And I can't even tell you, like, we can make the case from certain years. God, those five films they chose were terrible. Yeah. Like, what the hell? I can't even say that either of these two. It's the genre conversation. It has to be. They're not terrible films. They're excellent films. I just, going back to that entertainment piece. Yeah. There has to be a shred of that in there. And that being said, honest, I think... Honestly, there hasn't been for years with the Academy. Well, it's it's right. always been drama, right? Right. I think also Raging Bull is probably more entertaining than Ordinary People. Yeah. <laughs> a little more vol- volatile than Ordinary People. Uh, yeah. But and I think that's interesting. I, I, I think you sway a little more Ordinary People, but by a, a hair. Maybe. And I think I sway Raging Bull, but by a hair. I think, honestly, I don't, and I don't think we ever thought we would come to this, I think it's a lot closer than we ever failed to admit. Yeah, this is the E.T. moment for us in the 1980s. There you go, yeah. Which, by the way, that should have won after we've concluded that of the ones nominated, that was the clear winner that year. yeah. Yes. Absolutely. To that. To that. To that. Well, let's put the cast cover on 1980 with our nightcap. All right, so wrapping up this week's episode, Mr. Scorsese and Mr. De Niro have made many a film together. I mentioned three or four in this episode, but then you got a... Oh, it's the saxophone movie. He, I'll look that up. <laughs> uh, but he plays like a saxophonist. It's kind of like a romance. Why is that escaping me? Mm. But Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Irishman, these guys have made some films, right? Right. Uh, so my nightcap question to you is top three actor director partnerships. And I think I gave you the rule minimum of three films they made together. Three, three, two, two, one, one. Yeah. You want me to go first? Go ahead. Paul Thomas Anderson and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, nice. So I'm going to go. That's uh heart eight. Great film. Boogie nights. Amazing film. Magnolia. Troubling. Amazing film. Punch drunk love. Troubling. Good film. And then the hustler, well, fuck that, or the the, the master, fuck that movie. Um, that, terrible film. Those are four great, great yeah. entries. Yeah. Uh, we both are Paul Thomas Anderson fans. Uh, kind so of, uh, kind of. No, you're not. I think maybe I like you more. No, than no, you. no, no. So we did the PTA cast, and I go back and listen to that, but it hasn't been good as of late. I didn't like the master. No. I didn't like Phantom Thread. And then that licorice pizza did get out of here Ugh. with that. So there will be blood was the last one I really liked, but I love all of your choices. Yeah. Those are good films. So that's number three. The master's a film. That's not for me, but I can't deny that Philip Seymour Hoffman wasn't amazing in that film. Right. Uh, the film I'm thinking about is New York, New York. Oh, uh, so they, they made, so it was Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino. Uh, my favorite Scorsese film. Really? Favorite. Mm. Joe Pesci actually really does fuck his wife in that movie. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they, they teamed again, uh, with the Irishman. And then I think he's also in this Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. So they'll, him and DiCaprio. So talk about the latter partnership between those two directors. Great choice, number three, Matt. Thank you. My number three, Kyle McLaughlin and Mr. David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Wow. Dune, 
Blue Velvet, uh, Twin Peaks The Show, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and then Twin Peaks The Show Revival. When I when I when I think about Mr. Lynch and I'm like, why would anyone like want to make a movie with like that guy? You have to know the type of film he makes, like right, like Clooney's not making a Lynch film. That's just not that that that. So I think McLaughlin more than any of the other actors he's worked with, he gets it right. He gets the weirdness. He was like David, if you need to like do like a weird thing here for like an hour or two hours on set, I get it right. Mm-hmm. And he rolls with it. And I think as I know the, the Dune, Paul Atreides, like that movie's not great, but he's pretty good in that role. And as Agent Cooper, I mean, it's a pretty good role. That McLaughlin, that's his role of a lifetime, right? So, good choice. Yeah. Um, and then you know what I wonder about those actors that dabble into those like weird experiments. I'm like, those guys, they like acting. It's not a paycheck. It's like they want to get involved in the the weird experimenting. Like they get off on that too, much much like Lynch does, trying to figure out how to make it more dreamy, right? Mm, it's good. Nice yeah. choice, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, number two, I bet I'm going to steal the director that you're going to choose in one of your final two, but I'm going to steal the actor from you and it's Hitchcock and Grant. And that would be Suspicion, Notorious, North by Northwest. And then the other one that I'm not going to even speak about because it's truly terrible. Joe, Joe Robbie, the cat burglar, Grace Kelly. Oh, to, ca- no, no, to catch a thief. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I made you say it. Those first three are fucking amazing. Yeah. And um, there's an everyman element in this that I think Jesse might be leaning to, but maybe not um, for where we go forward. But uh, look, I love Grant. And I think that Hitchcock was able to use him in a way where he didn't have to, and not that this is bad, fall back on some of his vaudevillian circus tropes that he grew up and cut his teeth in the showbiz industry in. Um, We've talked about Notorious a lot we we were gonna do we were it gonna do it and last year and we got sick. <laughs> we got sick, dude. That's the that's the moniker of this podcast. Mm. We were gonna do it, but then we, we got, got sick. sick. <laughs> With our boy Claude Rains too. Yeah, Ingrid Bergman. We'll uh, do, it, it, no, someday we've done two Hitchcock casks. We're gonna do a third. People, there has to be we're gonna one. do a third. We will do Marnie eventually. Because and we gotta do Shadow of a Doubt. Yep. I would love to talk about Lifeboat. Yep. Uh, and. Uh, no, great choice. I, North, I, you know, North by Northwest is the the conversation starter for Bond. Yeah. Can Cary Grant be Bond? And the answer is yes, but by the time they got to 62 and Dr. No, he's too old for it, right? And so, Grant, to Grant's credit, he said, guys, no. I can't do it. I, I, I just don't <laughs> want to do this. So that's my number two. Great choice. Uh, oh, maybe we've been doing the podcast too long, Matt, because we're just like in like synchronicity. Mm-hmm. My number two is also Hitchcock, but it's Mr. Jimmy Stewart. I knew it. <laughs> yep. I'll raise your uh, uh, couple with Rope, uh, Mm -hmm. Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo. Dialing for Murder. I don't know. That's um, that's Ray Milland. What's that? Yeah, did I forget one? The Symphony. Um, No, that's To Catch a Thief. No, no, no. That's uh, Frick. What the hell is that no, called? No, The Man Who Knew Too the Much. The Man Who Knew Too uh, Much. No, for, he, I was going to say the one for, he made twice. Forgive me. Forgive me. I, I mentioned. So that's four, right? Yeah. And we've covered three of those on this podcast. Yeah. I think Jimmy Stewart got Hitchcock, right? It mm-hmm. was like, Hitch, what do you want me to do? You want me to be a weird stalker? I get it. I'm going to do it. And Jimmy Stewart's so good in all, all of those movies. I don't like... Uh, yes. I just forgot it. I know. Yes. I just forgot the title. The Man Who Knew Too Much, yeah. which is a remake of a film that Hitchcock made in Britain with uh, Peter Laurie years ago. Uh, even he's really good in that, but 
I think to me, like what made this list work for me was the director and the, they, they know each other, right? They know the types of films they make. They get the actor, they know their strengths and weaknesses, and they play to both of those strengths. So with that, you get the best out of those actors, right? I think that's the, the crux of this list Mm -hmm. is that person understands that person better than they do almost. Yeah. Who's your number one? This was by a lot, Mm -hmm. a lot. It's John Ford and John Wayne. Mm. Um, I'm not going to read off the whole filmography between the two of them because it'll take 20 minutes, but I'll just give you uh, a couple of them. The Quiet Man, this, this is uh, six fifty through like 60. The Quiet Man, The Searchers, The Wings of Eagles, Horse Soldiers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, yeah. How the West Was Won, and yeah. Donovan's Reef pass on that last one. Um, there's about 10 more before those, including Stagecoach, mm-hmm. and they were expendable. Um yeah. Hard to argue who made who in that relationship. Maybe they both made each other. Who drank more in that relationship? Also hard to determine. <laughs> Great Ward choice. Bond probably drank them both under the oh, table. Oh, Jesus Christ. Be close. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Awesome. Oh, that, that, I feel bad to admit this, but I didn't even consider that one. It's so obvious you don't think about sure, it. Sure, yeah. I guess I went more for weird and obscure, but my number one is a clear-cut number one in my eyes. Wait, is it? Tarantino and Jackson? No, no, no. Okay. That also good, right? Also pretty good. It's John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Duh. How did I think? Yeah. yeah. Somebody shoot me. Elvis, Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from L.A. I mean, those are films that are just a lot, not all of them, but mo- the, the, those three, uh, Big Trouble, Escape, and The Thing, those are in my top tier of like films, right? Mm-hmm. So... Those guys got each other, right? They, yeah. they, they understood. They understood Big Trouble. Like, Kurt, I need you to be John Wayne. I know exactly what you want, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the three, they made some of their best films together, uh, collectively. Uh, Kurt's filmography and John Carpenter's. And I think the thing, the pinnacle of that partnership. Yeah. Uh, I could only pick that. They're, they're good together. And I wish just in my film, Blockbuster Heaven that there was like one more that they would do together. I think it could be great. So I wish John Carpenter would, would do one more, one more swan just song. One more. No, I just, I don't think he's got the, he just doesn't want to do it. He just not in his energy wheelhouse right now. Nope. It's not. I'll compose some scores, but that about, that's about all you're getting from me. I don't want to be on set anymore. Sure. Can't blame him. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Who? Yeah. Eventually you just run out of steam, right? Hear that M night Shemilan. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. To your to your list. To your list. Great choices. Here's two. And uh, that's at the end of 1980. So, okay, we got to get in the time machine. <laughs> Doc, you're saying I got to go all the way to 1994? Mm. You got to tell me about the future. <laughs> Here we are, the year 1994. Arguably the most competitive best picture race that's ever been. Correct. Uh, we'll talk about all five nominees, but... Next week, we're going to cover the winner. Maybe controversial. I can't wait to get into it. The crowd pleasing mm-hmm. uh, for Mr. Robert Zemeckis, Forrest Gump. A journey into the anecdotal. Uh, well put. Uh, this is going to be interesting to say the least. And I just want to say up front, it's okay to like a movie. It's yeah. okay if you're a fan, because I know this film has its fans and it's collective. People really like this. I'll even say I kind of like this movie too. How you can't not like this film. Yeah. But this, this film's heavy got heavy competition this year. This film's got its issues, and once we get into okay, like that one over those films, nah. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to have that combo. So, yep. 
Uh, this is gonna be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Yeah. 94 is sort of the opus for all things Oscar debatable, right? It's, it's kind it. of what started this whole cast, right? It was it like, is. if we're doing an Oscar, what could have been, what won and should have, could have won. Mm-hmm. It's this year yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. So uh, I can't wait to get to it. And then we'll, we'll tease out a little bit later what the argument will be for, cause there's a couple choices, right? Yeah. But the one we're talking about, I'm glad we're finally going to be talking about that film. Finally. Yeah. Uh, but you got that coming to you next week. So, hey, thank you for listening. Hit up any of the social media platforms or hit us up on risesmileproductions at gmail.com. Did we forget an actor-director partnership? Probably. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah, of course. We left off a bunch. But Wilder Lemon. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Even Scorsese DiCaprio. They, they've mm-hmm. turned out some interesting product. I've mentioned Wolf of Wall Street a lot on this podcast. Um, but, yeah. Spielberg Hanks. There you go. Yeah, Spielberg Ford. I guess that's only Indiana Jones, but that counts. That counts. That meets the minimum three. But yeah, let us know any of that. And uh, thank you very much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, uh, leave a rating review on uh, any of the social media platforms. But for right now, we got to be going. It's time to get out of this black and white haze. Man, we've been talking about it too much. It's time for a review of Empire Strikes Back. Here we go. Here we go. Let's do it. I am your podcast father. Excellent. Thank you. Have a good Uh, week, everybody. We'll see you in... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, we'll see you in the dark. We will. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Raging Bull is property of United Artists and Chardoff Winkler Productions Incorporated. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Hello. Salvi, this ain't funny anymore. Is it you? I know somebody's there. I can hear you breathing. Listening? Your mother sucks fucking big fucking elephant dicks. You got that? <laughs>